welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time, some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... I don't like Mondays. I'm repeating this information. Okay, the father of the suspect, known only right now as Brenda, is en route to the command post. He advises she's got five to six hundred rounds of ammo inside the house. In 1979, Brenda Spencer a seemingly average teenage girl living in a nice suburban neighborhood outside San Diego, made and executed plans that would place her in infamy and set a violent and terrifying national precedent. She received a rifle for Christmas and a month later opened fire on the elementary school across the street. The event is forever glorified by the song I Don't Like Mondays by the Boomtown Rats and marks the bloody beginning of the American phenomenon of school shootings. Long before Columbine and Sandy Hook, there was Brenda Spencer. I Don't Like Mondays, the true story behind America's first modern school shooting, was written by N. Lee Hunt. Mr. Hunt joins us today on Murder Most Foul to talk about his book and his connection to the case. And um, I was 10 years old when Brenda Spencer um, took rampage and took, you know, took shooting into a school and changed America forever. And it stuck with me my whole life. You know, I've grown up, um, I, I, I went into radio. I've been active on radio my entire career. I also had a day job because radio isn't what it used to be. And, and I, I, decided it was time to actually tell the full story as San Diegans knew it. For whatever reason, uh, Brenda Spencer being sort of the first school shooting, um, nobody has ever written a book about this story. And we've learned nothing from the original school shooter. And I just felt it was time to put it together. And I just thought, you know what? How has it gone 40 years and nobody has told this story of the original school shooter and, and what we can learn from it? In the 70s, San Diego was this really free-to-be town, and it was the fastest-growing city in America. And before we knew it, we had all the trappings of, of big America, and it happened quickly. And we went from what was a small town to a gigantic city. Brenda had a large play in that. And now, as I say, 43 years later, we've got first responders who are running away from the scene. And my book details how the first responders put you know, the students before anything else and went in and were absolute heroes that day. And I really want to make that point clear because I think police are getting a bad rap around the country. But in this particular case, uh, the San Diego Police Department certainly saved lives, multiple lives that day. January 29th, 1979. So cast your minds back for those of us who are old enough to remember. I was only 10 at the time. This is before 
paramedics in San Diego. This is before 911. Um, this is a time that we used the phone book back then. So to call the police, you pressed zero and said, I need a police officer. And the, the local operator transferred you through to the local police station. San Diego at the time had one way downtown. So morning, San Diego wintertime, which is for many places in the, in the world, uh, their summertime. It was a crisp morning for San Diego, but wasn't really cold. Typical sort of um, Steven Spielberg-esque type of neighborhood. Track homes for as far as the eye can see. And this elementary school, which is uh, the oldest students were 12 years old, um, is just plopped in the middle of a gigantic housing estate. Brenda Spencer lived across the road with her dad. Her brother had come and gone. He went to, to university and left and came back and, and had, you know, had been arrested by the police for small things, nothing major. The sister had just left to move in with friends at university. Uh, dad worked at the local uh, college around the corner, SDSU. He was an uh, audio tech. Brenda was home alone. She told her dad that she was suffering from, from PMS pains, didn't want to go to school. Dad didn't want to touch any of that stuff, so he let her stay home. She broke two windows in the, out of the glass of the door. She had this sort of um, diagonal-shaped glass, 70s pattern, if you can imagine, it, in the top half of the door. She broke the two in the bottom corners and just placed two rifles. One was a pellet gun, which is interesting and will come to play and actually plays a huge factor in her motive. And the other was a, a brand-new 22 Ruger, which is more than half her height. It's quite a big gun for Brenda. It was very short. Uh, she just bought for her for christmas from her father she had she had proven that she can be responsible with a weapon she had her own pellet gun her family was from arkansas and actually i had friends in school at that age who already had guns it's not that uncommon to give a teenager a weapon for a birthday it just really is a 22 is a low caliber weapon anybody who knows uh weaponry will know that this is sort of your starter rifle it, it has a, it has a small clip inside of it where you can do 12 rounds so she would have had to reload Anyway, she places it in the door and she just starts taking shots at students. And she shot multiple times and she had hundreds upon hundreds of rounds of ammo. Uh, certainly the availability of the weapon and to, and to the, the ammo is not, an, is not an issue here. She clearly had the means. Uh, why she chose to shoot across the street at students is, is kind of unknown. Her bedroom actually faced the school. Uh, she could have shot from her bedroom window. She could have stepped outside. She could have done a number of things. But what she chose to do was to break out the window in the, in the front door and shoot directly from it across the road. She had an obscured view. There were trees in front of her house. And this is California. Things grow freely here. Um, she shot directly up into this sort of, um, there's a breezeway, as we call it. I guess it's, it's classically a hallway. But in California, we call them breezeways. She was shooting directly into where the students walk up. So it was the only entrance to the main part of the school. This is not a huge block. This is just a single-story school across the road. About 125 feet is the distance. It's a pretty close range for, for a weapon of that size. And she just started plucking kids. But parents were still rolling up to school. They couldn't hear. It was a low-caliber weapon. It was making a pop noise. Some thought it was fireworks. So, and again, this is California. Hey, this is 1979. It's really somebody shooting. It just wasn't even a possibility. So as she's shooting, parents are pulling up in cars, letting kids out, walking right into fire. It's quite a remarkable scene. And, and again, 1979, did we really think this would happen? But the only uh, two deaths were adults. Uh, tell us about those deaths of two adults at the school. 
Yeah, it was the principal and the custodian and much loved people. He was a, a, a pillar in, in uh, educational status in San Diego. He was one of, one of the better principals in, in town. I think that's safe to say he was, he was a very good educator. And Mr. Mike was the custodian who both of them saw victims fall to the ground right in front of the school on the walkway, and they ran to their safety. So they, they ran, sorry, they ran to keep them protected, should I say. And, and as soon as they ran out the door, Brenda, boom, boom, two shots straight to the chest. It, it is quite remarkable. Both, both uh, were felled quickly from two quick bullets. It's as if, I don't know what was going through Brenda's mind, but my investigation would lead us to believe that she shot all the adults in their chest or their neck and shot all the children in wrist, elbows, and buttocks. It, it, it does lead you to believe that she was choosing the bigger targets to kill. Um, and it's still early morning. Police are starting to arrive. And she was shooting for some time. Police record 36 shots, but undoubtedly more, undoubtedly. If she only shot 36 shots, then her, her actual success rate in landing the bullet is, is unequivocal. In, in the history of warfare, no one has, has hit so accurately, um, which is possible. Brenda was a well-known a well good shot amongst her family. Everybody said she was the best shot in the family, bizarrely. Uh, the police arrived. Um, Officer Rob Rob, who's a hero, ran down first with his gurney, with Dormus, his, his partner. They were ambulance drivers for the police. We didn't have paramedics. They ran straight into the scene uh, with almost reckless abandon, seeing people hurt, injured, not being fully aware of, of what was in front of them. He ran straight up to the injured parties, put them on the gurney, took a bullet straight to his neck, which was lodged in, near his spine. But in actuality, the bullet had gone into my neck, nicked my carotid artery, bounced off my shoulder blade, and lodged against my fifth thoracic vertebrae. Well, it took me a few seconds, but I shook it off. I went back to work, trying to patch people up. While she continued to shoot at me. Luckily, I didn't get hit a second time. Brenda really took aim at the cops. As she's shooting, uh, my father, who was one of the editors at the uh, Evening Tribune, which was the evening paper in San Diego, they have the Union in the morning, the Tribune in the evening back then. It's now one paper. Um, as the world changed. Um, they hear on the police scanner from down at the cop shop downtown that there's somebody going crazy with a gun in San Carlos. Now, they didn't know where San Carlos was. And I would still say to you that many San Diegans have no idea what part of San Diego this is. So they get this call like, there's a shooter in San Carlos? And they think, well, where's that? So they get out something called the crisscross directory which was an old phone book we're going way back now where you can actually search addresses and give you a phone number so it's the opposite of the normal phone book so and they find the house it's across the road from the school and my dad runs and puts this crisscross directory on the desk of the only available reporter because this is the evening paper they've already hit their first deadline for the for the afternoon edition and he throws it onto a political writer's desk and my dad just says hey start making phone calls find out what's going on kid Go get it. You know, this is proper old 1970s reporting. So he flips through the crisscross, calls the house. A little girl answers. He thought it was a very young girl by the sound of her voice. He says, I hear there's a shooter. 
or something going on at the school across the street. Have you seen what's going on? And she goes, yeah, I have. I've seen everything. It's me. And he doesn't believe this. He thinks, oh, is your, is your dad home? Is your mom home? Can I speak to somebody else? And she says, uh, no, it's just me. I'm, I'm, I'm shooting the school. And he says, well, why would you do that? And then she utters, and this is immediately, just, as, just after she's been shooting at school, she says, I just don't like Mondays. This livens up the day. Sorry, I got to go now. I've got to do some more shooting. And she hangs up the phone. The reporter captures the famous quote. He then runs to my dad and says, hey, I think I've just spoken to the shooter. And he goes, well, get back on the phone. What's wrong with you? So they bring in a couple more skilled reporters. And he says, get this story out right away. The news. And it's just this go, 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 go. The police arriving. The newspaper are calling. Um, the, the, the parents are trying to evacuate their children from the school. The teachers are making head counts. It's just go time. And it's never been done before. But the military precision from all counts of people surrounding this incident is quite remarkable, considering where we are 43 years later. But the time he's speaking to her, the cops still have not identified where the bullets were coming from. Outside in front of the school, the police are arriving and they're searching for where the bullets are coming from. And they're sitting still watching and she's still firing away. And the phone is ringing behind her because the reporters are calling back trying to get more, more of the dirt. And according to your book, um, there was an officer, Kazanak, who sort of took a page from like the A-team uh, and sort of uh, came up with a great idea to try to block the shots uh, that Brenda was hailing down on the school. Isn't that right? He commandeered a gigantic garbage truck and drove it in front of the school, blocking the entrance and, and, and essentially blocking Brenda's view for any more victims. Luckily... Um, I was able to find people who were, who were um, avid radio listeners. Police scanners were all the rage in the 70s. CB radios. And for those who are old enough will remember the CB react. Me as, me, I'm one of the CB people. We loved it. It was a way to communicate that was, that was I don't know, it's, it's a perfectly American way to communicate, I think. So this gentleman managed to make cassette tapes of the shooting. And um, in, the, in the recording, it's, 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 it's just literally two cassette tapes as a child, he just was an avid listener. We got together, we reviewed them together, and we managed to transcribe them. And they're all in, in a lot of detail in this book. And I think it's important because it, they're not always readily available, the full police scanner for people to, to, to uh, go over and dissect. But in this case, this is, we don't know what's happening. People are being shot. Send in police. We have children. We have, now we know the shooter. And as you follow the trail in the book, it becomes quite remarkable. They don't know how many shooters there are. I, I, since the book's been released, I actually bumped into an old friend um, who was a police officer. And his, his wife said, oh, I remember this case really well, because we were at the old girls Catholic school about three miles away. And we were put on lockdown when this was happening. They didn't know how many shooters there were. They didn't know exactly where they're coming from. They didn't know if maybe there were three shooters and two were on the move or any combination. They had no idea what was coming. And they, they were moving into uh, really uncharted territory, and they behaved with absolute integrity. It was absolutely incredible uh, a mission they, they undertook. And, and, and they found that she was in the house. They set up snipers around the perimeter. I was lucky to speak with a, with a, a, a trained San Diego sniper called Marty Deutz, who went on to be a police chief and a fire chief. 
brilliant guy. Um, he was, for, for two times in his career, he was given the green light to fire upon sight. Two times in his entire 35-year career with San Diego Police Department. And this was the first time. And he was up for it. And he was positioned. And when you ask him about what the day was like, he says, I don't know. I was staring at a doorway for three and a half hours. You know, like a true sniper. She wasn't moving within the house. She had stopped firing once the garbage truck arrived. They called in police negotiators, ex-military experts, um, Ole um, Olson and Chet Thurston came in. One went with a bullhorn into the street to make noise to distract her. The other one um, started to make phone call. And this is where the reporter thing ties in because Steve Wiegand and, and, and Gus, or the other reporter, are still trying to make contact and they're still chatting away to her. And they're having this lovely, lovely chat. And the police say, to call the newspaper and go, well, we hear that you're talking to the suspects. So get your ass off the phone because we need to get in touch. And this is long before cell phones. This is long, you know, this is dial up. This is, this is the old dials. So literally they had a bullhorn and they had yelling through the bathroom window. So, that, so that's all they could do until the reporters got off the phone. Eventually, Brenda answers the phone. It took quite some time. And Ole Anderson, a real great guy, um, struck, struck up a conversation with her and started saying, are you hungry? Do you need stuff? Eventually, they shut off the power. She doesn't even notice that the power's off. So what she's doing in the house, don't know. She's not firing. Uh, they see the dog in the backyard barking at the back window from the sniper's behind. They think she may have gone into the kitchen and walked around the house. I don't know. Certainly, the snipers never saw her in the windows. And then she's just starting this, this lovely chat with, with Ole Anderson, the, the negotiator. And eventually, six hours later, she agrees to bring out her two rifles. And we'll get back to this. One was the pellet gun, which she discharged during the rampage. And, and the twenty two, which did all the damage. Um, she brings both rifles out, never reported in the New York Times, never reported in the L.A. Times for whatever reason. I have no idea why the photos clearly show two weapons, but all reports say single, single weapon. Not sure. This is one of the key reasons why I wrote the book. There's a lot of things that are just untrue. Um, and then she goes, she's allowed to go back into the house to get all of her ammunition. And I, I, I thought, why would you, you've got her jump and grab her. Why would you? But they did. And she did come back with all of her ammo and then sat there quietly and SWAT ran and grabbed her. There was no tackling on the ground. There was no huge fight. She just stood up and walked. And here was this five foot two, 110 pound, red haired girl wearing a skull cap and glasses and corduroy trousers and a zip up hoodie and a pair of, you know, your classic Adidas from 1979. And they walk her across the road and super cop Ted Kazanak takes the lead. And drives her downtown and books her. And it's, it's just a remarkable, wow. What happened in that, in that time that she stopped shooting and she just walked out the door? It's just a, it's one for the books. So I wrote a book. <laughs> Perfect. Um, and I believe, according to the book, in the beginning of her you know, uh, interrogation, um, she didn't have an attorney present? And they take her downtown and they ask her questions alone. She's a 16-year-old girl. Her dad is available and does come downtown, but doesn't sit in with her. Her mother is called, but curiously, her mother, who was a bookkeeper for the, um, I think it was the Dinosaur Golf Tournament. I 
that was happening in Torrey Pines. I think it's now called the San Diego Open, Phil Mickelson territory. Um, she was counting cash. And they said, you know, your daughter's just been involved in a shooting. And she said, well, I can't come now. I'm counting cash. Can her dad deal with it? So that, that's a small indication of, of maybe what we need to, to know about the family. You know, read the first half if you want to know all about the, the wham, bam, here's what happened. And the second half is what happened afterwards. And perhaps maybe we can gleam some insight into why it happened. And, and I think both stories are fascinating. So she's interviewed. She is a, she's a, a given a court-appointed lawyer. And he, he stays with her. Actually, has remained friends with her all the way through her time in, in prison. Well, she goes to jail. She's in some sort of denial. She's writing letters to friends and, and to people she knew, uh, assuming that she'll be out of prison in no time. She really just didn't seem to understand that what she had done was wrong. She had um, vandalized the school with a neighbor friend of hers called Brent Fleming, often spelt Brent, 13 years old and, and a few years younger than her. But because Brenda was so small for her age, they saw eye to eye. And I think maybe her maturity level was, was below average. For whatever reason, Brenda befriended this 13-year-old, and they were best friends. And together, they robbed local shops and drugstores. And, and they had vandalized the school the year before. And she was well known as this, the, the creepy house on the block. And so this house was kind of known to people around the area. Some neighbors had said that she was openly sharing her father's prescriptions. So that there is an, an element of drugs. It's reported everywhere that the Spencers were poor and she slept on the, the, the lounge floor with the father on a mattress and that the house is full of alcohol and the dad was a drunk. Well, I've got the police photos. I've looked at the house. Everyone said, well, they didn't drink. There's not a sign of any alcohol in the house at all. And in fact, Brenda had her own bedroom. And it, even though the house was a mess and the father didn't take care of it or take care of her, um, there's no indication that any of those things are true. And, 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 and I think that needs to really be pointed out. There's some poor journalism at the time. When a girl shoots up a school, I think they jump all over. There must be a reason why. So I thought there's got to be something here. So I dug deeper. I found news articles. I found all kinds of stuff to, to show. And I even found um, people who could cooperate this information. So the father goes to visit Brenda in juvenile hall, juvie, as they call it in San Diego. He has a cellmate, she has a cellmate, sorry, called Sheila McCoy, a 16-year-old who just burned down her parents' house because she didn't want to move. The father then strikes up an unlikely relationship with this 16-year-old who incidentally has a striking resemblance to his daughter, Brenda, the, the, uh, the perpetrator. She gets moved to an open juvenile hall facility where Wally, Wally is Brenda's father, 50-year-old gets this 16-year-old pregnant. She moves into the same bedroom that Brenda was living in. Neighbors think they see Brenda walking the neighborhood because the resemblance is so similar. They call the police. The police rock up, and he says, no, it's a friend of the family, whatever. He's then questioned by the police, and now 17-year-old Sheila McCoy is just getting ready to give birth to a baby, and he's forced to drive out to Arizona where the law is 17 to marry someone with one parent's consent, whereas the law in California is you have to be, if you're under 18, you have to have both parents' consent. So the mother signs as the witness to let her 17-year-old daughter marry a 50-year-old man willingly. So Brenda now, here's her father marrying her best friend from juvenile hall. It just becomes crazy. She then starts to plea bargain for her case to say, you know, I, I could be this, it could be that. 
At the same time, you know, Harvey Milk had, was just assassinated in San Francisco, and, and, and the culprit in that case had used the Twinkie defense. Patty Hearst had just been released. You know, the 70s were a weird time. We had uh, airplane hijackings once a week. In fact, there was, a, there was a hijacking in L.A. the weekend before Brenda shot, which it's remarkable how strange. If you look back at the annals uh, of crime in the 70s, it was a strange, strange time. So what was the what was the outcome of the judicial proceedings uh, for Brenda? Well, she pleads guilty. And of course, she wants to plead guilty because, number one, she's guilty um, and she's banged to rights. She told the reporter what she was doing. There was no doubt of her guilt, but she was trying to look for many ways out of this. But of course, you don't want her to go to trial because if she goes to trial, there'll be an invasive investigation into her house and her family. And her father would be revealed for having, uh, you know, well, it should be simple. Her dad's a pervert. Um, you know, he, he grabbed a 16-year-old vulnerable child and brought him into his home. And, you know, it, it, hold on a second. Brenda has a, a, a very good defense here, but instead of using it, she plea bargains to 25 to life. She becomes a, a ward of the state it's at, at 17. On her 18th birthday, she is given her her sentence and the the lawyers almost agree that we're, what we'll do is because she's so small and because she's so young what we're going to do is we're going to keep her in juvenile hall until she's 21 until she's more mature because she's so young and they all agree that and that's all settled she get then gets sent back to juvenile hall after being convicted during her 25 to life which is a bit of a ruse in california in 1970s and it's confusing so if you get a life sentence you're eligible for parole in 11 years. If you get 25 to life, you're eligible for parole in 25 years. So in actual fact, if she hadn't plea bargained, she probably would have got a much better deal. Either way, she couldn't plea, She couldn't go to an a, a investigation because her dad would be revealed and he's putting pressure on her, her to just take the deal, whatever they give you, because I don't want anybody to know that I'm a pervert. The day that she's, she's sent to Juvenile Hall, they've already started processing the papers to send her to the California Institution for Women, which is a full prison, full of the Manson sisters, full of all the, all the horrible murderers, female murderers of California. So immediately she's sent there because the connection between the judicial system and the correctional system are two separate things completely, and none has weight on the other. So they were completely deceived, completely misled. And as the laws were changing in the 70s, Brenda finds herself at 18, a tiny little girl, double murder. She, she finds herself with the big girls. And she essentially goes into a bit of hiding and she just lays low for a while. And there's a few cases of her doing bizarre things in prison. You know, she starts a fire. She accidentally breaks a mug and they think she's trying to kill herself. And now, um, I mean, moving on, 43 later, she's still in prison. 43, and she's still doing the same stuff. Um, she's done lots of drug treatment stuff in prison. While she's in prison, Loads of things happen in the background. The victims hire a lawyer and decide to sue Wally because the shots came from the home. At the same time that they're starting litigation, Bob Geldof, who was a singer for an Irish band called the Boomtown Rats, people of my age will know them. He's looking for a way to capture the American audience and make loads of money. And this case comes across the, the radio. He pens a song, decides to put it out right away because he's on tour in America and he wants to have his massive hit. He then chooses to perform it in San Diego 30 days after the shooting, a bit raw, I say. Didn't make him any friends in San Diego. He then performs it 
all across a tour in America and then puts it onto an album later that year. And it's released, curiously, the same week that she's sentenced. The, the song is I Don't Like Mondays. I wonder where he got that. He begins with essentially this young girl who goes crazy and shoots the school. And the lesson today is how to die. Of course, with a lot of heavy metal, if you listen to the song, you really won't be able to pick up the um, lyrics. So let me just read a little bit of it. The silicon chip inside her head gets switched to overload. And nobody's going to go to school today. She's going to make them stay at home. Daddy doesn't understand it. He always said she's good as gold. And he can see no reasons, because there are no reasons. What reason do you need to be shown? And all the playthings stopped in the playground now. She wants to play with the toys a while. And school's out early, and soon we be learning. And the lesson today is how to die. It's a song about Brenda Spencer, and he denies that it's about Brenda Spencer for a while because he's getting a lot of flack. But I believe that this song and its and how big a hit it is, and he performed it again at Live Aid. So he's used this song, and it's his only number one internationally. And I think Brenda's still in prison because of the song, because of the notoriety, because people keep coming back to it. And of course, everyone was, is trying to come up with some uh, meaningful reason of why she did what she did. Um, drugs and alcohol, abusive father, whatever. Uh, and I know one of the theories was that um, she had a um, she had epilepsy that was caused by a uh, a fall off a bicycle, right? Brenda did have epilepsy, but it was something that was never ever discussed in school beforehand. It certainly does exist, and she's managed to control it in prison with the right medication, and she's absolutely fine now. But at the time, the father was a bit squeamish about anybody coming close to the house. So whenever Brenda was, was pointed out in school as being a truant problem and having certain issues, the epilepsy was not reported until she went to prison and it was clocked and noticed while she was in juvenile hall. So we, we take it on face value that she was epileptic at the time of the crime. Fine. Um, in the 1970s, this certainly could have been used as a defense. Most Certain. It was a, a defense that she could have used, but she chose not to. Again, I believe, because if she had, uh, there would be a huge investigation into her family life and her father would have been rumbled for his, his perversions. Um, she had an accident on a bicycle many years before, and this is quite revealing as well, because she was riding her bike and, you know, she hit a, a street sign. All her friends say so. Her brother says so. She hit her head. She's hurt. She's laying in the ground. Um, the sister says, dad, you should take her to the hospital. He goes, ah, she'll be fine. They call the mother. The mother goes, well, her dad should handle that because they had had a horrible breakup and, and the father had earned custody and she's living with her dad and her sister and her brother in her dad's home. It's not until the next day that she's still feeling ill and still vomiting that the mother thinks, well, maybe we should take her to the hospital. Mm, I don't know what to do. And eventually this older sister takes her to the hospital. So both parents had really kind of separated themselves from any injury that she had that day. 
I don't think that's connected to the crime because it's multiple years later, but I do think that the behavior of the parents is connected to the crime. I think there's certain neglect of some, that's a big word. There was certainly, it was a different time. It was a different place. I certainly would have taken my child to the hospital that day and I would have been mighty quick about doing it, but that was a different world. Let's talk about the, the, the again, the parole hearings and what your contact was with her. Was it by, uh, by letter? Did you ever visit with her? Have you ever uh, been face to face with her? Uh, I've never been face to face with Brenda, but that's only because of, of COVID. Um, to be honest, the restrictions have been pretty heavy since the book was begun. Um, and I, you know, I then sent a letter, a birthday card and said, you know, and I, I just I said to her, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I was a 10 year old at the time of your crime and I'm from San Diego and uh, here's a picture of my cat. Um, you know, his name's Zabby. He's a lovely little cat. I, I read somewhere that um, female prisoners love animals. I don't know where I read that. Well, she wrote right back and said, Hey, good to meet you. I've got a lot of friends in the UK. I had this friend, this, I had a friend who we chatted about what I did for a living. And she said, well, I mean, this is really interesting. And I started sort of building a rapport with her. And I said, so I got to ask, you know, and she said, I don't remember most of it. In um, 1993, uh, Brenda gave uh, an interview to a, a local television station uh, where um, she claims she couldn't remember anything of what happened uh, that day due to uh, uh, alcohol and PCP. Uh, let, let's listen to a little bit of that interview. Do, re do you remember the gun? Mm-hmm. I remember the, the rifle because I had gotten that a month previous. As a Christmas present? Yeah, it was for Christmas. From your father? Mm-hmm. Do you remember loading the gun? Do you remember pointing the gun? Mm -hmm. I remember looking out and, and seeing like commando types sneaking up on the house and stuff. And I don't remember actually going in and getting the rifle and loading it up but I remember seeing them and being real scared and terrified you know they're coming to get me or, and I have to protect myself and stuff and I know somewhere in there I did go and get the, the rifle so the whole thing to you 14 years later is just this drugged out haze Basically. Yeah, it's really, it's really broken up and fragmented. It's, I, I can't sit there and, and tell you, well, at this time I did this and at this time. You know, it's just little bits and pieces that have come back over the years. Brenda Spencer told me what she did that day was not first degree murder, which takes planning, but the lesser crime of manslaughter. I don't sit here and, and plan on how to go out and kill people and stuff like that. That's that's um, just not that's not how I am or who I am and uh, how it was presented and uh, it made me look like that there were allegations that mm -hmm. Brenda Spencer got the rifle loaded it mm -hmm. planned all of this and shot those people yeah and they made it look like you know just for the fun of it and stuff which is totally senseless there's uh, every day I live with you know the knowledge that I, I took the lives of two men. And that's real difficult. She was drug tested after the crime and, and her toxicology came back as negative for all alcohol and all known drugs. 
The only drug that was unable to be tested at the time in 1979 just happens to be PCP, which also just happens to be the drug that she says she was on. Now, PCP was really, really expensive. And on Brenda's pocket money, I don't know if she would be able to afford such a dose that would, I, I don't know. I just don't know. And she certainly isn't revealing that. And I think that might be the key to her getting out of prison is actually coming clean. Um, if it was that she just didn't like Mondays, it might very well be that she just, she just didn't. Psychologists have this wonderful way, and I'm not a psychologist myself, but I'm not purporting to be, or nor am I are criticizing their work. But I have noticed through all my studies, and, and, and especially in this book, is that they love to categorize things. And in all the psychology books, they put everything into a box, and they, they give it a name, which is great. And I think that's fantastic to, to let us know where we are within the crime. But... What it hasn't done, and, and history will show that in 43 years from the time Brenda committed her crime to today, school shootings have not just continued, they have multiplied, and they have grown up and up and up. So, so the evidence to me shows that something else needs to be done. They had different types of psychologists interview her, or they had um, brand new psychologists I mean, Otno Lewis, one of the great psychologists who's interviewed all of the serial killers, and she's a wonderful documentary about her, her remarkable life on Netflix. She actually interviewed Brenda Spencer in 1979 as, as a very young psychologist, but her report was never submitted anywhere. I managed to find that. It's in the book. Um, she mentions the fact that her father, during an interview, had mentioned that Brenda liked to stroke his hair. And it's the only time in anything that suggests that Wally was inappropriate with Brenda, other than Brenda's own suggestions. Now, she openly says through her parole hearings and still saying through her parole hearings that her father was a naughty guy and did all kinds of horrible things to her, you know, all the unimaginables, and that she was absolutely um, abused by her father physically, emotionally. And in fact, he was, he was also punching her and beating her and imprisoning her. Um, there's no evidence to say it's true other than what Brenda says and I believe Brenda because Wally immediately after her daughter uh, Brenda being imprisoned then shacked up with a girl of the same age who looked exactly like her and behaved atrociously um, they had a daughter Wally Spencer Brenda's father had a daughter named named Bree which is Brenda's half-sister um, Sheila McCoy was pushed away from the house she says she was verbally abused and threatened to never come back, and she never saw her daughter again. I, I think it's important because she was never studied, ever. And I find that school shooters uh, and, or mass shooters are often never actually fully dissected. I'm not suggesting we're going to find a bug in the brain and we're all going to solve this. Um, but I do think the similarities are remarkable between Brenda, Klebold, Harris, some of the, some of the other shooters. Um, there are some definite similarities, and I think the song played a factor because it misled, and I believe the, the media that was from outside of San Diego nationally misled people to believe things that were not true about this case. I'll let you, be, as the reader, read the book and go through this and have a look and see whether the mental health, what, what is established then in 1979 would have made a difference possible.
Have we changed at all in 43 years? Would it have made a difference? Mm, possible. You know, there's a lot of things in this that, that we've learned, I'll say it again, nothing in 43 years. And Brenda Spencer's book, I believe, could almost be run as a textbook to show what we didn't do, what we could do, and what we're not doing. It could also show first responders that um, you never know what you're going into, but there are ways to behave professionally and responsibly um, to protect children, because that is what needs to be protected in, in these cases. And I think the SDPD in 1979, having no idea what they were dealing with, behaved so professionally. I'm, I'm in awe. Um, in the time that I wrote this book, there were five school shootings. That says it all. Uh, I just think we should, we should, we should maybe not necessarily chat to Brenda, but maybe go back and look at all the files, bring out what we can, build some similarities that aren't just categories of shooters, things that actually matter in an FBI type of context, in a sort of quantico, let's go into this deeper, perhaps we can solve it. And, and I think the point is absolutely well taken in the book. And uh, though I, I like at the end, you do, as again, you bring in the, the experts and they talk about that's fine as a generalization, but you never talk to her. There, there's, there's a sort of one paragraph on almost the final four pages of the book where I, I, I've, I always come to a conclusion in my head that something doesn't add up here. Uh, Brenda, clearly, uh, there, was a, there was a mental illness. Whether or not her mental illness was enough to drive her to shoot children across the road, many people suffer with mental illness. Many people suffer from being abused as children horrifically and don't shoot school children. So, you know, in the 70s, there are multiple newspaper articles suggesting that Alice Cooper is responsible because she listened to his, his demon, on, you know, demon style of music. And Schools Out was just a great song to, you know, which was released five years before the shooting, mind you. It was hardly a new track. Um, but, you know, this idea that, that heavy metal, and that was a huge thing in the 80s, you know, from Brenda Spencer, that that led her to do this. I listened to heavy metal as a kid. I never shot it at a school, nor even thought of doing it. So, you know, we can go round in circles as to the why. I think for me, the pellet gun at the door she broke a window specifically to use it. I'm doubting why would she have the pellet gun in a position to fire across the road if her intent was to purely kill? I'm not saying her intent wasn't to kill. What I'm saying is, was her intent to purely kill with that pellet gun? It doesn't make sense. And something doesn't add up. If she was abused and she committed this crime, oh, good. It all makes sense. We've got our reason. Case closed. School shootings never happen again. If her intent was that she wasn't abused and she just had enough and she shot out the But the fact of the matter is, no matter which it is, we still have an epidemic of school shootings in this country where we've concluded nothing from it. And, and I don't know what the answer is. I'm not suggesting I do. What I've done is catalog the information as best as I possibly can. And in some cases, perhaps I've been too thorough. But if you're a real geek for crime and you're a geek for the specifics about the police investigation, the court... The, the transcripts from the police dispatch, this book's for you. It's 365 pages of absolute geek crime stuff. And, and, and I'm proud to say that. But I don't want to fall into the trap of saying that just because she's different than Columbine or Sandy Hook or Uvalde, that therefore it's not connected. Because I believe the psychosis within teenagers, um, especially, and again, you know, I'm from a broken home, but especially from broken homes, or from where parents are not attentive, 
uh, I think there are connections and they should be made. Um, and I hope that maybe the book does at least get people talking again about the cause uh, of the mental illness, the guns, the school violence, the why are they the targets, I think is the biggest thing. Brenda shot children who were not, pe not people she knew, unlike some of the other school shootings. Um, there's a side note, sad side note, is that 10 years to the week, exactly, at another school in Stockton named Cleveland Elementary School, created a distraction, kids ran from the building, and he shot over 20 kids with a huge, huge arsenal of weapons. Um, that, to me, was a copycat crime, and I think that would not have happened without the song. Bob Geldof, and one final piece on him, as I say, is my final piece here, is that I think he's holding a little bit accountable for the phenomenon of school shootings across America because he glamorized it bigger than anybody else could. And whenever you say the word, I don't like Monday, it's half of the people will say Brenda Spencer and half of the people will say the song. But the result is the same. We've learned nothing from this school shooting since 1979, and it started it all. Well, there you go. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope this has been quite the education. It certainly has been for me. Uh, the book is I Don't Like Mondays, the true story behind America's first modern school shooting. And as we've pointed out throughout the podcast, there have been many since. And of course, the marvelous book is available at Barnes & Noble. It is available, of course, online at Amazon. But I like to recommend uh, folks out there, if you want to pick up a, a book, uh, any book, uh, go to your local bookstore. There are still a few of them around. We need the, to keep the, the uh, brick-and-mortar stores open, uh, small businesses, so they can get it for you. And it's just, I think it's a little bit better than, uh, than hitting up Amazon, but that's my opinion. So as we wrap up here, uh, why don't you uh, give my audience uh, a web address or somewhere where they might be able to drop you a line, learn a little bit more about what you do, etc.? Well, uh, I'm Ed Lee Hunt. Um, um, the best way to probably find information on this book and where to buy it is at brendaspencer.com. And don't hate me for using the web address, but I wanted to capture it before someone else glorified it further. Um, this is an educational book in some respects. brendaspencer.com to buy the book. You can also get it at Wild Blue Press, which is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for new authors like me who are, who are writing fascinating books to get published. A lot of publishers aren't publishing, and I, and I highly um, um, commend you, James, for pushing the small bookstore. Use them or lose them, folks. Go to your local bookstore, order the book, uh, and, and say hello to the people who work behind the counter. They've come out of COVID um, um, just gripping on to their businesses. Buy a couple books while you're in there if you can afford it. Thank you. Well, you get a couple books, some some greeting cards. They have games. They have magazines. You know, uh, we have one here that sells vinyl, sells vinyl records. A big vinyl What's collection. What's vinyl? <laughs> yeah, there you go. What's vinyl? Um, so once again, I do want to thank you, uh, Enley, and also wish you safe passage back to merry old England across the pond. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed the book. In conclusion. I applaud Mr. Hunt for writing this book, not just for his comprehensive coverage of the first modern-day mass shooting of innocence, but for his wake-up call that we've done little in 43 years to stop or even slow down the carnage. Like Mr. Hunt, I am not a psychologist and do not attempt to understand what happened on that January morning and what contributing factors were at play. 
That being said, personally, I have no doubt in my mind that Brenda Spencer is a cold-blooded killer who is totally responsible for her actions. I don't believe anything she said in her self-serving TV interview where she blamed her rampage on being high on PCP and under the influence of alcohol and that in her mind she was not shooting at innocent children but was protecting herself from commandos out to get her. My opinion is informed by Brenda's own words reported by the police negotiators, and recounted in Mr. Hunt's book. It was fun to watch the kids that had red or blue ski jackets. They made the best targets. It was like shooting ducks in a pond. It was so easy. I enjoyed watching them squirm around after they had been shot. I have no reason. I just thought of doing it at the spur of the moment. I'm going to stay here a while. I want to have some more fun. It was fun seeing kids being shot in a group. Also, I know I shot a pig. So, it might be just as simple as Brenda Spencer did not like Mondays. Until we meet again, stay safe, and for God's sakes, don't murder anyone.